Welcome to another episode of No Thanks But Yes, chill conversations with splendid people. This podcast features the many faces, voices, and pathways of recovery from problematic relationships with substances and behaviors. Well, good evening. Hi, Donald. <laughs> good afternoon and good evening. How are you today? I'm very well, thank God. Um, ah. Well, thank you for saying yes. Really appreciate that. Thank you for asking me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Long overdue. Long overdue. So tell me, uh, on No Thanks But Yes, we introduce ourselves. Who the heck are you? Okay, so my name is Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie Ward. I'm a person in long-term recovery. For me, that means I haven't used alcohol or other drugs for, gosh, over 26 years now. And I am the CEO of Faces and Voices of Recovery UK. How about them apples? Yes. Hey. <laughs> Great. Good. Yeah. Well, we have been connected for over 10 years now. Uh, started out by uh, stalking you on Twitter, I think, right? Yeah, I remember you guys sent we we exchanged um, t-shirts, didn't we? I think it might have been like on our second or third walk. I think it might have been your first walk over there, or your first local walk. What was it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You uh, you were UK recovery walk at the time before becoming Favor UK, and uh, I was with Recovery Communities of North Carolina, and. That's right, yeah. We were all about those rallies for recovery and, and walking to celebrate recovery. You're still doing the deal over in uh, the UK, aren't you? We are indeed. We just celebrated our 15th UK recovery walk this year in Hull uh, in September. Um, yeah, so yeah, we're, we're still doing it. We've, the bidding process is open, so there's a... You know, anyone can apply to host the walk um, and it's open until December 20th. If anyone throughout the United Kingdom wants to host a walk, they can apply uh, to be the, the UK Recovery Walk host. It's a very oh. democratic process. It's a very open process. So, yeah. Oh, wonderful. I, I got a chance to, to come in and participate when Middlesbrough uh, right. got yeah. the bid. Right. What would you ever consider bringing it to Little Scotland here in Asheville, North Carolina? My gosh, wouldn't that be lovely? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be awesome, man. That would be great. So you um, you identify as a person in recovery. And uh, so beyond uh, beyond that, well, what does recovery mean to you? What does it mean to me? It means to me that I was a, I raised a beautiful, big, gorgeous boy who's now 21, a lovely young man, and I raised him completely clean and sober. And uh, he's never seen me inebriated in any way. Um, I, can, I can count on one hand the amount of times I raised my voice at that young man, or even when he was a child, um, and I never raised my hand to him. So that tells you about the healing that has happened. You know, I came from a very, very, very violent background, um, alcoholic parents. And that that cycle of trauma and addiction and abuse has been broken, well and truly broken. 
He is the epitome of all things good. Um, and he, he really knows how to take care of himself and take care of other people as well. He's a very uh, just human being. Mm. Uh, and he knows what's important in life. You know, stuff that I sort of intrinsically knew as a child, but my addiction took me away from and the recovery process helped me realign with. He's got all of that in spades and abundance. So it means for so it means all of that. It means I think that is my the best thing that it means to or my greatest achievement is as a mum, you know. A sober that's, parent. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. It sounds to me like um the process of recovery has brought about emotional regulation. And that's been a big part of, of my recovery as well. I, I too, and ending the cycle of trauma and the cycle of addiction intergenerationally. And so those are very important parts of recovery. I appreciate you sharing those. Not everybody talks about, about that. So I, I no, well, not everybody gets it, Donald. No, everybody gets that, you know, no, everybody is able to tap into that. And I think because I got recovery so young, I was very fortunate that I had access not only to the 12-step program, which is still, you know, uh, a mutual aid fellowship that I access today, but I was able to access lots of other help, you know, like cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, really, really strong women in my life who had experienced what I had experienced. So I think I am a benefactor and a product of the help that I was given and the help that I sought, you know? Right on. You had access and uh, that's critical. I've been following you on social media and I know that you're struggling to increase access for, for people, particularly in Scotland, to access appropriate care. Um, that's critical. And it's part of my recovery as well is that, uh, um, I had access ultimately. I wasn't that young when, when I finally sustained recovery, but, uh, when I needed it most at that time, I had it. And that's my work daily as well is improving access for people who normally, uh, cannot as readily get it as I did. Very cool. Yeah, I've been following you. So tell tell me more about what Favor UK has been up to lately. What do you do? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that we have started doing since COVID that we never did before. Um, COVID, because we couldn't walk, because a lot of our time and focus was spent around raising money to host the walk every year and obviously COVID put a stop to that. We weren't able to host a walk really for three years. Uh, the restrictions in Scotland and England were very, very high. Um, so uh, we did actually walk on the third year but it was a much smaller affair but that gave us time to reflect and take you know, really listen to our membership and uh, what our membership were asking us for was an advocacy service. We, we didn't know that that was what it was going to be called at the time, but they were constantly asking us to help them get two things, treatment access and treatment choice. So the opportunity came probably 
created by Favour UK as well because we started campaigning very, very differently from how we had campaigned before. We had always campaigned in a very positive way through making recovery visible, trying to use the tactics of persuasion and reason and logic, um, making the argument for recovery, you know, from a financial, economic, emotional, spiritual place. But 2019, just prior to COVID, we had the highest drug deaths in the world, um, in Scotland. And there was a real uh, palpable ask from our membership who came to us in Scotland and begged us to help them to do something. And we didn't know what to do, Donald. We only knew that if we organised an event, a, a public event, we could let people speak, you know, we could give them a microphone and we, we could record what they said and we could amplify their voice. And as a result of that, that campaign was called You Keep Talking, We Keep Dying. The Scottish government were really pressurised, so it was a very different shift from our normal campaign style. We had, as I said, campaigned very positively, but this was very negative really highlighting the negative stories about people dying. Family members losing loved ones, you know, brothers, sisters, mothers, daughters breaking their hearts. And um, because their loved ones couldn't access or have a choice of treatment. So we put a tremendous amount of pressure on the Scottish government via the Scottish and some of the UK press. It really caught fire, the political local and national politicians got interested and um, obviously there was a variety of different reasons for that. But as a result of that, the Scottish Government made various pots of money available, which of course there was a bun fight for. But one of the pots of, that became available because of our campaign was um, some so, sm small seed funding to recovery community organisations. And um, last year, we saw a slight drop in the drug deaths. Um, so that funding became available in 2020. And um, I think across the across Scotland, there's been about just under 20, I think, recovery community organisations funded, as I said, very small amounts of funding from, from 10,000 to 50,000 a year. But some of us were um, also funded for a four-year promise, and that was what our advocacy service was born out of. And I, and, I, and I think that that tiny reduction that we've seen as a result of those seedling, fledgling recovery community organisations starting to take root in our communities. Of course, um, the leadership in Scotland, which is very pro-legalisation, um, decriminalisation, uh, and also very anti-abstinence. They said, you know, in their uh, drug death task force report that they were, they believed that abstinence was stigmatising and that we shouldn't ask people to, you know, have that aim as being drug free, you know. So I think the leadership in Scotland would claim that it's because of the various interventions that, you know, they received quite a lot of money for doing the same things that they've always done. We've had supposedly, now Audit Scotland have found, very, found it very difficult to follow this money. So I'm, I'm reluctant to give credit here, but there has supposedly been 100 million 
offered in the last two years 40 million supposedly invested in residential rehab. Just looking at Glasgow as a microcosm, prior to that funding, we only had 17 residential rehab beds for the whole of Glasgow. And let me just sort of put that into context for you. Um, there's just under 160,000 people registered as having an alcohol or drug problem in Glasgow, Greater Glasgow and Clyde. And there was, you know, prior to that funding, only 17 rehab beds. There's now 23, mm. which is still incredibly, you know, it's an absolute failure and catastrophic denial of how large the problem is. But mm. the majority of that treatment budget, um, as I said, for Glasgow, using Glasgow as a microcosm of the rest of Scotland, there's almost fifty thousand pounds and sorry, fifty million pounds in that treatment budget. And they claim that a million and a half of that goes on rehab. Um mm. and they also claim that uh, about two million of that goes on um what they call recovery community hubs. But the there's four million on heroin assisted treatment every year. And um 2.3 million on this proposed drug consumption room. And the rest of that 50 million is spent on substitute medication and the sort of infrastructure that supports that. So our argument has always been, you know, that we want to see a balanced treatment system, you know, and if we're only investing in, you know, meeting people where they're at and just leaving them there, then that's not balanced. And it's, it's also ethically, uh, very, very questionable. Um, you know, the morality of that deeply concerns me that mm. our leadership have gave up on here. You know, they, they they speak to people like me as, you know, I've, I've been called an anecdote or an outlier. Like people like me are somehow statistical anomalies, whereas, you know, I'm surrounded by hundreds, thousands of people who have recovered Yes. And, you know, the, the expectation of recovery is, um, but every time I meet someone who reaches out for help, I expect them to get well. I don't think for a moment that everyone will, will get well, but my expectation is that they will. <laughs> and um, if they're given the opportunity and the choice and the chance. So, yeah, I think there's been a real... Yeah. Um, it's been a very, very difficult few years. So you asked me, you know, as an organisation, what do we do? So we do that. We advocate for choice and chance through our advocacy service. Yeah, I want to also... unpack that for a minute, though. Um, I, I've seen um, advocacy organisations evolve over time, and, and it seems to be a natural evolution. In, in the beginning, that is that is what we do. We raise the profile of recovery, very positive messaging. Uh, we leverage stories and data to improve treatment choice, access to care, and appropriate support. And uh, But, you know, we get angry, and advocacy is about anger, harnessed anger, clear direction, and it sounds to me like you've made some progress in organizing and mobilizing your constituency of consequence to to ask for what they deserve. And yeah. it sounds like now the target is a, a balanced approach. You're not speaking out against public health interventions that reduce death, but you're asking for equitable investment in uh, in in choice in treatment choice in in yeah. 
treatment and recovery support services as well. And you have concerns that uh, um, some of us and our choices in recovery may be stigmatized or blamed. Um, I, I think you got a lot of work to do over there, but you've gotten a lot done. Well, it doesn't. Yeah, thank you. It doesn't feel like that. You know, it feels <laughs> like, you know, like I'm sure every it's nice to hear that you think it's a natural evolution. You know, the the yeah, I think there's been a lot. Of, it's what happened still, over. It's what happened over here as well. I mean, with with faces and voices of recovery, we were very positively oriented, and then you yeah. know, we couldn't ignore the the rising overdose deaths, and began to intersect uh, you know recovery movement with public health, behavioral health, physical health, social health, and and I think we're seeing a more um a more balanced approach to advocacy with a little bit of anger. Yeah, so, I, think, I think that anger, that anger is an energy in itself, and we know as people in recovery we have to be careful with that. It can be incredibly draining. But I think if you, and I, you know, I think there's been a for me personally, there's been tremendous growth around expressing, you know, speaking up, and um, because I think for the first ten years of Favor's life, I was very much a bridge builder. You know, I was very much, you know, of course, what happens when you're a bridge builder is you get walked on from both sides. So, you know, I was building those bridges between the harm re uh, reduction, the harm reduction community and the public health sort of leaders and the recovery community leaders and sort of making the arguments, you know, that in a very, in a very balanced, calm, civil um, amicable, friendly way, and I've made a lot of friends. So, so when it came to speaking out about the imbalance, I had a lot of friends. But you know, I but I never, I never, um, I never sort of planned it like that. It wasn't like a ten-year plan. Like I'm going to, I'm going to make all these friends, and then I'm going to go for the juggler. <laughs> it just seems, you know, that that's been part of God's plan. Um. But the other thing that the charity has done in the last couple of years is harnessed that political interest. So, you know, there's so many different competing, competing dynamics in Scotland. You know, you've got the sort of Scotland against England, Westminster, so that you've got the Scottish government against the English government, the Westminster government, the UK government. So there's certain dynamics there that they play off each other. And of course, you've got the local politicians in Scotland as well, the nationalists and the unionists. So we've been able to, and for me, that's been a very big baptism of fire. We've been able to really navigate that well. And we've got to the point where we've brought a bill to the Scottish Parliament that if passed, would make it the law that people get access and choice, you know, no more asking nicely and building bridges and making friends. Because what I found when we, you know, within the addiction sector was when we brought that bill to the parliament, the addiction sector was like, oh, hang on a minute. Like, you know, is it okay if we're giving you a wee pat on the head? You know, like, but don't step into that space. Don't yeah. you dare step into that space. Because mm. the addiction industry in the UK is very different from the addiction industry in, in the States. You know, it's not led by people in recovery. So 
Yeah, we've brought this bill to the Scottish Parliament. It's got through the consultation stage and it's about to go to the first stage of debate. So what we've found through that process is that the poverty industry, you know, the poverty charities, every poverty charity in Scotland supports it. Every housing charity in Scotland supports it. All the churches in Scotland support it. Civic Scotland, you know, they, those organisations support it. But the addiction industry has gone, hmm, we don't know. We're sitting back. We're just going to sit back here and not say too much. So it's interesting. We've learned a lot. We've learned a lot about politics. Yeah. We've learned a lot about organising and mobilising people. Yeah. When they invited us in, uh, they uh, they thought we'd be okay with a pat on the head, and uh, we found our voice. Yeah, well, they, you know, I like that analogy of um, like they didn't realize we were seeds, and 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 of course, you guys gave me the the coyote badge. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> coyote like, clan activist. Yeah, they don't know. I'm like a dog with a bone. This is my life's work. I am not going away. <laughs> oh, it was an honor to give you that pin that I got from Don Coyas from White Bison, because yeah. I know you're a dog with a bone. I know you're a coyote clan activist for sure. Um, we demand what we deserve. We find our voice. But we're also, you know, we, we can be kind in relationship building and um, we're smart. And um, yeah, that yeah. that comment about the head padding that really resonated with me. You know, I've been there and uh, and and I've surprised folks. So and I'm sure yeah. you're, you're surprising a lot of folks, too. Well, you know, it's been really interesting. One of my big fears um, has always been, a, you know, I'm quite severely dyslexic, although I am well educated and, you know, I'm proud to say I have a degree and a master's degree and all of that. Writing has always been a terrible, um, a terrible fear and a terrible, you know, like, the, like that dread when there's a task you need to do that brings you, and I've always avoided it, you know, I'm in the process of writing our annual report just now and I'm not very good at saying, you know, what we do, great. You know, I'm not good at the whole selling ourselves thing, but because we've had so much interest, particularly from the press, and my sort of profile has been raised quite significantly in Scotland, you know, with the public, there's been opportunities for people to misquote what I've said yeah. or to misinterpret what I've said, which has forced me into writing a lot more. You know, so of course people can still misinterpret or misquote what you say when you write it, but it's harder. So I've had to really face that fear and I've crossed a, I don't know if it's a Rubicorn or a personal <laughs> uh, plinth um, with that because I'm now in the space, I wrote something a couple of weeks ago just for fun. And that that's big for me because I would never write for fun. You know, I'm a voracious reader. Um, but I would never write for fun. And I did that last week. And putting things in writing makes it harder for people to, you know, I can be, if you know, in public, if because I care so much about this, I can be very easily um, dysregulated. Yes. Shall we say? We're the and same. It's, oh, gosh. Yeah. I just like, and it, you know, it's part. It's partly because we've been to so many funerals, and we don't want to go to more. Um, but it's because we live and breathe it, isn't it? So, 
I think um, one of the one of the real things that's been helpful is to write, you know, and I would encourage any activists. And you know, I can see why Bill White wrote so much to inspire <laughs> us. You know, he yeah. wrote. I mean, I just I couldn't keep up with his with his writing. You know, there there was a new paper every other day, and. Um, yeah, so I can see why he wrote because it's there as a resource as well. You know that adage of the the pen is mightier than the sword. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. I He's feel fighting. you. I feel you. Um, well, that's a great segue, um, and I wanted to say the die is cast. You mentioned the Rubicon, so <laughs> Emery's writing for fun. Watch out, y'all. Um, <laughs> So writing for fun, let's, you're engaged in some advocacy as a marathon, not a sprint. It is heavy work. It is joyous work at times too. But, um, you know, in recovery, we find balance in ourselves. What do you do to, to take care of yourself? What do you do to have fun? Uh, yeah. Tell me more. Do you know, I'm not really good at that at all. I'm, I'm so, I'm not good at... I think being a single mum most of my life as well, you know, I'm very duty bound. And my son is 21 now and he has moved out. Um, so I do have more time to have fun. And if I don't schedule in fun, I will just keep working. So I love going out for food with friends. You know, I'm a proper foodie. Um, I used to I used to cook a lot more. Like COVID really interrupted. I would, I would have lots of friends up. Um, and cook lots, um, but I don't do that as much. Um, you know, I love the cinema. I, I, I love I love going just like just hanging out with friends. You know, especially friends in recovery. Um, I've got other friends outside recovery as well. You know, but um, on my birthday there, one of my friends took me to a really fancy hotel in Scotland called Glen Eagles. Like really posh nice. so that was nice and um but do you know what I'm, I'm 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 just i'm so happy uh, at the moment my life is full of peace um there was there was a really turbulent few years there and i you know almost forgot what peace felt, uh, felt like so I'm, I'm i'm as happy in the coffee shop as i am in the fancy hotel you know or um, I love hanging out with my sister and her children, my niece and nephew, uh, my son and his friends. We just—I just booked a holiday for my son and two of his friends. We're all, you know, his two flatmates. The four of us are all going to go over to Bosnia um, in the summer on on a, a pilgrimage. Uh, but, you know, they're not. I'm practicing Catholic. They're not, but they want to come. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Okay then, so they're going to come to a wee place called Medjugorje with me. Um, so yeah, I love, you know, what do I do for fun? This might sound ridiculous, but, you know, I love going to Mass as well. That gives me a real sense of comfort and peace. Um, I like the cinema if there's something good on. Sure. I love podcasts, you know, I love listening to podcasts, you know, the real long form two, three hour ones. I learned so much. Isn't it wonderful that we've got access to so many intellects? Indeed. Um, yeah, I love it. I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. You are happy. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I think you're splendid. Tell me this proper foodie business. Where do you find good food in the UK? <laughs> oh. 
you know, you know, where you were on that shirt. No, 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 but, but Middlesbrough, the food's not great. Forgive me, anybody listening in from Middlesbrough. I live in the West End of Glasgow, and we've got, you know, it's a big student population here. It's very affluent as well. Not that I am at all, um, but I've got, so, I mean, Korean, Taiwanese, Chinese, Japanese, you know, French, Korean, you know, English, um, like so many good places to eat locally. I'm also a good cook when I when I can be bothered, you know. So my son's a decent cook as well. So yeah, we yeah the, the food in Middlesbrough is awful. I'm, really I'm, I'm not throwing any shade at Northeast England. I tell you, I don't want to be on the record for that. It was a simple question. <laughs> Awesome. Have you had, uh, uh, do, you, do you still eat haggis or is that something? Uh... Yeah, we love haggis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's like, yeah, I do. I love haggis. It's really rich. It's, I get quite anemic, particularly in the winter. So haggis is great. Yeah. Haggis, potatoes and turnip. So haggis, neeps and tatties. Yeah. That's, that's a staple around these parts. I've never had it, but I intend to. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to come out and visit you in the springtime. That'd be awesome. I'll make you haggis. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't want you to go out. Go out. Okay. Well, you know what? This has been lovely, and we always end these chill conversations with um, a final message for listeners. What do you have to say? Yeah, um... You know, whatever you're going through, particularly if it's um, difficult, it will pass. You know, I know it's a platitude, but it will. It always does. It might pass like a kidney stone, but it will pass. Um, and if you're in a good place, you know, enjoy it. You know, life, life's for living. Love your own life, not someone else's. And if you feel, if like me, you're completely duty-bound or overly duty-bound, um, try not to take yourself too seriously. I love it. Life's for living. <laughs> All right, sister. Well, thank you so much for saying yes, stopping by for a while. And I hope to see you again real soon. God bless, Donald. Bye. Thanks for listening to another amazing episode. No Thanks But Yes is non-monetized and unaffiliated available everywhere you stream excellent podcasts. Remember to subscribe today and tell all your friends about it.